0: Uh, Glenn had emailed me during uh, the week about um, the Apostle Peter and uh, the chastisement by Peter of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2. And um, I agreed to answer his questions or comment on it. So uh, it, it, uh, we won't take a lot of time on this, but in a way it, it does dovetail with even what Peter is saying here in the second uh, uh, book, the sec- uh, epistle of Second Peter in the first chapter there. Um, The context is, Paul, in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is trying to prove that he indeed is an apostle. And I don't know how much you know about, um, in the letters of Paul, there are 13 of them in the New Testament. There are several places in the New Testament, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and others, where apparently his apostleship was being challenged. Why would it be challenged? He never was with Jesus he was never with Jesus but what was the main criterion singular word there the main criterion for being an apostle he was commissioned by Jesus and in addition I mean as a part of that commissioning what's the qualification
1: the resurrected Christ. To, have, to have
0: seen the resurrected Christ that's correct did Paul see the resurrected Christ yes on the Damascus Road Acts 9, Acts 22 so he met that qualification, but perhaps uh, because he was not with Jesus during Christ's public ministry, plus also, as you know, he was the main persecutor of the church. I mean, you see that in Acts 7 and 8 and, and so on. And he, The reason he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road is because he's going up to wipe out the church in Damascus. Well, anyway, the, the reason I said all that is because if you don't know that, you don't understand what he's doing in the first two chapters. And chapter 2, the first 10 verses, is absolutely astonishing. Here's Paul publicly chastising Peter. And the issue was, uh, they are in Antioch, which, um, if you look at a map, Antioch is up in what today would be Syria. Uh, Then it was still called Syria, but it was was the second most important city in, in the burgeoning church the most important being Jerusalem and it was in Antioch where people were first called Christians however the vast majority of people in the church at Antioch are Gentiles they're not Jews whereas you know the early church all the early church leaders the apostles etc were all Jews That was creating a real crisis for the church and it was it was defining certain ethnic and religious traditions that were beginning to define the two groups. And so what was happening was uh, 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 Peter uh, had been sent as part of a delegation that went up there. Barnabas was with them, And what they started to do was they would not eat together. So you had the Jewish Christians eating and the Gentile Christians eating. And when Paul sees this, he comes unglued. And I'm sure he is extremely upset about this. Why? Because he sees the potential of two churches, the Gentile church and the Jewish church. He says that's not what the gospel is all about Galatians 3:28 in Christ there's neither Jew or Gentile, male nor female slave nor free, total equality at the cross of Christ. And he chastises Peter because Peter was leading the separation. he was eating with the Jews and said, no, I'm not going to eat with the Gentile Christians." and Paul says, why?, no, I'm being a little animated here, but why would you do that? And he says you know the gospel, you know the heart of the gospel, and he he publicly challenges and actually stronger word chastises Peter and says if you continue I'm paraphrasing, if you continue what you're doing, you are making you are making nothing out of the gospel, you're denying the power of what Christ is trying to do, which is unite humanity not around its ethnic nationalistic traditions, but around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ there's total equality in in terms of spiritual quality. And I mean, it it is one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament because we always, and, and in a sense correctly, but we look at Peter as such a dynamic center and dynamic figure in the early church, which he was. But here's Paul chastising Peter. And uh, it worked. When I say it worked, what I mean is what Paul wanted to see worked. Um, They kind of reunite and retool the dynamics of the Antiochian church, where it does become a model of Jew and Gentile together. And an important theological background to this is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, where Paul just lays out wonderfully that in the church, because of the gospel. It's Jew and Gentile united together in the body of Christ, which was, and I'm sure you realize this, when the early 21st uh, century was absolutely radical and revolutionary. And it was, it was really, it was, the early church must have been something to observe. They were house churches, and you go to a house church, uh, and normally they kind of met in a a more affluent member of the community, whether he'd come to Christ or whatever. And you'd go into this house church and you'd see Jews and Gentiles sitting together. You'd see slaves and masters sitting together. You would see men and women sitting together. There was no more radically leveling institution in the first century than the church. And that's what Paul is just so, he is so upset with what Peter's doing. I mean, at one level, it's sort of, oh, you're eating stuff. But he says, no, 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 no. Before the cross, that's what you did. You ate kosher food, and you separated, and he said, it's like he's saying, Peter, don't you remember the vision that God gave you in Acts chapter 10? You're in Joppa. This vision that all of the traditions and, and kosher foods and everything that separated Jew, Jew and Gentile are over. The cross ended all this. So, Peter, knock it off. That's not in the Bible. That's not. So, uh,
1: how does that tie with Matthew 15, where Jesus
0: talked about it's not what you put in, but it's what you say. Well, is there a tie to that? Well, a in you in know, in only in the sense that in in Matthew fifteen, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who had made their legalistic rituals a test of salvation. But
1: in a way,
0: that's what Peter's doing also. Well, yes, yes, he is, and again, that is that is also to an extent why. Paul is so hard on Peter, but I mean, Peter is still I hope you follow what I'm saying Peter is still living in the old economy of things He's not supposed to do that anymore In in the old economy, kosher food meant, you want to say old economy I meant the Mosaic Covenant, the the law Kosher food meant something In the new order of things it's irrelevant If you choose to eat kosher food that's fine, but don't make it a demarcation point between you and Gentiles it no longer is that demarcation point. And so if they're going to have uh, pork and sauerkraut, eat it. If they're going to have ham, eat it. I mean, that's Acts 10, the vision that Peter sees. That's what the whole point of that vision. Kosher food is irrelevant from here on out because Christ fulfilled all this at the cross and the subsequent resurrection. We're in a new order. And so, you know, Peter, and it's really, high. Now, if you read that, I'm sure you did, Barnabas also joined Peter, right. which is astonishing, really, because Barnabas is the guy who got Paul up in Tarsus and brought him down to the Antiochian church. Remember, this Antioch is Paul's home church. I strike that. Uh, Antioch is Paul's missionary sending church. The first, second, third missionary journey of Paul were all sponsored by the church at Antioch. He's from Tarsus, so that's what I didn't mean. It's his home church, but it's his it's his sending church. So this church was really important to Paul, and he's watching these guys. Still, still, it's like they're still living in the old order of things. He is he is really upset. So anyway, I hope that answers your question. No. It's really it's a fantastic chapter. In Galatians, didn't it doesn't say that Peter was eating with the Gentiles,
1: but then when the Jews showed up, he kind of
0: exactly that's right. That's exactly right. He he makes it. He's he's afraid. He, he doesn't want to upset the Jews. He I go back to the kosher laws, and Paul in effect, Paul saying you should lead these Jews, that those old traditions no longer mean anything. Yeah. They were Christians, so these Jews. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, this is in the this is in the fellowship hall of the Antiochian Church. I made that up. That's not true. But I'm just oh, trying. Mm-hmm. It's part of the the, the church now. There is a lot going on there. I'm trying to stay away from any more bunny trails and get back to why we're here. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way because Glenn's question was a very relevant question. But there's so many bunny trails. But there's a lot going on at this time. This is about AD 43. Uh, we're not quite AD 49 is when the Great Jerusalem Council occurs. That's recorded for us in Acts 15. We're not there yet. But as more and more Gentiles and more and more Jews start connecting with one another in Christ, they become Christians, then these, these issues of all of our cultural traditions, in terms of religiosity, no longer apply. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I mean, that's hard today, isn't it? Yeah. Right. I mean, my mother is absolutely convinced the most sacred instrument in the world is an organ. And electric guitars and drums and everything else are evil. Yeah. By nature, they're evil instruments. Oh, that's and that's a cultural tradition that has no bearing whatsoever in the Bible.
1: Where does the Messianic Jews, where do they fall into play? Today? Mm-hmm. Well, today, in that.
0: Well, then, Glenn, Messianic Jews would be Paul. Paul was a Messianic Jew. He had right. seen and trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Messiah. So it, so, in a way, I mean, so that's kind of a, that's a concept that wouldn't have as much application in the first century because all the Jews that are coming to Christ are jemezionic jews but today that's a very meaningful uh term or concept Uh, i've seen various percentages so i won't try to quote a a reliable percentage because it's small but there's a growing proportion of jewish people who are coming to terms with the claims of jesus christ and accepting him as their personal lord and savior and their messiah Typically, Messianic Jews, if you make that label fit, it's not only acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, but they often keep some of the tradition, kosher, practicing. They observe the Sabbath, not the Lord's Day. Exactly. And that's troublesome to some people. And, you know, it's just, um, is it evil to do that? No, it's not evil. It just depends the spirit in which you're doing it if you're acknowledge, if you are, if you're a Messianic Jew and you're acknowledging Jesus, this is your Messiah, but you're also honoring and acknowledging the traditions that are associated for 4,000 years with your people, and that's, that wouldn't be correct, 3,500 years with your people, um, and you're just acknowledging that it's part of my identity, who I am, I don't think there's anything evil with that. But if you are looking at those things as... Ways in which you merit the favor of God, you cross a very important line, and and I, that's that's not honoring to the Lord to do it that way. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. The messianic messianic J- Jewish phenomenon is very controversial today. Obviously, it's very controversial for the Orthodox Jew because they think they should be all shot, <laughs> but it's a, a joke. But I mean, they really don't want anything to do with them. But for, even for, among evangelical Christians, there's it's disturbing because they're keeping these things and you don't have to do it. Kosher laws are irrelevant past the cross.
1: But it is a tradition. But
0: they're looking, that's it. I mean, I know, I have friends who are Messianic Jews and most of them look at the things that we've just highlighted as part of their, their ethnic and, and identity tradition. This is who I'm a Jew. Mm-hmm. These are part of, of, of thousands of years of my history. And there's nothing wrong, as long as I understand that I'm saved by grace and justified and all that uh, in Christ, for me to observe those traditions, is, it's okay. It's, I mean, that's how they want to say it. And I don't, I don't in any way think that's, that's wrong or evil, as long as the mindset is, this is part of my tradition, but it's not meriting. It's not a legalistic tradition that's earning favor with God. That's a very dangerous idea.
1: Well, Jim, these Messianic Jews also uh, have an opportunity to witness to their brothers and sisters because of what that practice is. Absolutely. Don't you think? Absolutely. So God, in his total schemes, got it figured out.
0: (laughs) Well, and many, uh, and again, that's hard for, I mean, for for a Messianic Jew to have a significant witness to an Orthodox Jew, they don't mix well. Mm -hmm. They really don't. Uh, but you know, on an individual, personal basis, that can still be very, very meaningful. And God has used that in many, many, many Jewish people's lives. Absolutely. All right, Glenn, thanks for bringing that up. But John wants to ask another question.
1: This is a little bunny trail. Do we know, is was, was Peter in Rome at that time when Paul discovered this in Antioch?
0: No, he's in Antioch. Peter is in Antioch.
1: And so Paul and Paul came
0: there? Yeah, well, yeah, yes. I mean, well, It was kind
1: of a personal confrontation? Yeah,
0: very personal yeah. and very public. Okay. Very personal and very public. Mm-hmm. In the Antiochian church there, that's right. Now, the, the first 10 verses of, well, it's not, it's 3 through 11, really, so it's not the first 10. Um, and hopefully we can finish this section. I've... Uh, As I worked on this again, I was just thinking of a way that makes it easy to remember, because this is a very profound passage of Scripture here. In verses 3 and 4, and we've already covered this, but I'm just summarizing it. uh, Peter summarizes our position in verses 5 through 8, which we're almost done with, and really going on through verse 10. The focus of Peter is on our practice of our faith, and then he concludes with a reminder to stay on the path to eternal life. So, if you want to, if if you'd want to talk about it the way Paul talks about it, you would say this refers to justification. This is an emphasis on sanctification and this is a path to glorification now I wrote those three terms at the top because they're Pauline that's the way scholars talk about Paul writing it (laughs) but these are Paul's emphasis points in terms of how you look at your life as a Christian you've been justified, you are being sanctified headed toward your glorification. And so what Peter is doing, and it's very unique, but that's each writer has their own unique style and vocabulary and syntax and everything. He is reminding in his unique way of our position in Christ, which should lead to the practice of these virtues. And he's he's going to use a a, a set of phrases in verse 9, which I think is one of the most significant verses in the New Testament on sanctification and to stay on the path to eternal life, the way to eternal life, which is the the final glorification, the final stage of our redemption. And so that's kind of just another way to look at this, and it knits it together quite neatly, and actually quite powerfully. So, um, well, does that make sense? It's just a, it isn't the only way to look at it, but it's a way to look at it, and it ties uh, key terms that we have used a lot because we've been in some of Paul's letters quite quite a bit over the years, last couple of years. And so he's just, he's doing it in exactly the same way, but he's using different emphases. So, in verse uh, 5, again, I'm not going to read all these and go through all these. We've talked about them. For this reason, make every effort to supplement, complement your faith. Okay, you're justifying saving faith, verses 3, or four, three, for, uh, three and 4. Now, now, Here's your life. This is what it's to be characterized by. This is you supplement your faith with, so you're actively pursuing what? Virtue, your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So there are seven virtues, seven qualities, let's put it another way, seven characteristics of sanctification. You could put it another way. These are spiritual gifts that the spirit I mean, you can just use all the different ways this stuff's referred to in the New Testament. And Woody knows this like the back of his hand. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. Woody knew that. He always says that. I just want to remind so I mean it's just so he's talking here, he, Peter, is talking about our active because supplement, supplement is an imperative. This is what we're supposed to do. We it's like a, it's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work within us, supposed to will and to do of his good pleasure. What does his good pleasure look like? Here's a nice, nice list of virtues. <laughs> And we talked about this last week. I wanted to finish it last week, but we ran out of time. And that was all your fault because you had so many questions. <laughs> but we, each one's tied together. Virtue with self-control. Self-control with so They're all connected. They're linked. They're inextricably linked together. And so the last two. in godliness, which again we talked about last week, with brotherly affection. If you were reading that in Greek, do you know what you would read? Philadelphia. Phileo Aldofos. Brotherly love. That's what you would read. As we said last week, the first five really focus on the internal virtues of our lives that the Lord wants to develop in us and that we are to actively pursue. The final two, brotherly affection, love, are the outward manifestations of this. How does this affect my relationship with other people? And so brotherly affection, and it's, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to, to know how to talk about this. This isn't brotherly affection, and it is, the word there is phileo. It's one of the words for Greek, in the, uh, for love in the Greek uh, language. But it's brotherly love. It's, it's the affection of friendship. It's the affection of closeness in interpersonal relationships. It's, a, it's an affection of caring for people. It's an affection of, um, or it's it's a quality of demonstrating compassion and uh, mercy in your relationships with people. Yeah, that's all of those. It's like you're caring for others like you care for siblings, and in the United States of America in 2018, that's maybe not a real good analogy because siblings don't always get along really well. And look at that—is there's a sense of permanence
1: about it? Yes, yes, yes. There's, a, there's a, almost a blood
0: connection. Yeah, I mean and the connection is now uh, a spiritual connection because you've come to faith in Christ. And that's why the early church was such a uh, such an anomaly in the Roman Empire. Because they're running around hugging each other and, and he- greeting each other with holy kisses and they're calling each other brother Tom and brother Fred and brother everybody else and only sisters in the room, but I mean, that that kind of... A, and nobody was doing that. And that's one of the reasons why the early Roman critics of Christianity charged the church with incest. It's a bunch of incestuous people gathering together on Sunday morning, hugging each other, calling each other brothers and sisters. You know, that's crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff to charge them with. But it was such an anomaly. Nobody was doing that. And as I mentioned earlier... About the social manifestations of this in, in these house churches. You see all these different people, the different socioeconomic groups meeting together in one place. So, so There's nothing that, like that, nothing like that in the Greco Roman world. Back
1: to the Peter question when did it switch from Saturday to Sabbath
0: to Sunday? That's a bit problematic uh, to answer that. It's not as clear as I guess we'd like it. But by, for example, 1 Corinthians 16, which was written about mid 50s, Paul says, "When you gather on the first day of the week, what's the first day of the week? Sunday. Sunday. So already by A.D. 55, in the city of Corinth, which is a major Greek city, the churches are meeting on Sunday. Well, Paul's church is a-
1: pardon
0: me. Paul's churches. A- well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it it seems. I mean, that is really a great question, Brian. That there's been a tremendous amount of discussion about that. Uh, in, in my uh, last book, I talk a little bit about that, because that really was one of the issues that continued to separate Jew and Gentile. Or I should, I should strike that. Christianity and Judaism, that's really what I mean. Because Ju- Judaism still had their Sabbath, which is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, and they're rigid about that. And as the church began to worship and observe Sunday as the the... Separate day of the week for worship—that was part of the growing cleavage—and that was hard for a lot of Jewish Christians to accept. That—that was not an easy thing for them to accept. Would one of the reasons for that been so that Jews who went to temple,
1: who were interested in Christianity, could then go to the Christian church (laughs) on Sunday and weigh the two?
0: That may have been a pragmatic reason, but that is not the primary reason. That okay. may have been one of the reasons, depending on where the um, where uh, the, the church is, is located. Um, <clears throat> yes, that could, but I don't think that was the primary reason. Okay, that was part of it to accommodate that. That's why those early um, those early, those the segments of the population the early very early decades of the church. Uh, it says people are sometimes called God-fearers. I mean, just all, there are all kinds of things happening where Jews are testing Christianity, testing, I mean, t- trying to figure it out. And, and so they do go to the to local churches. Yeah, that's a part of it. So this, this issue of brotherly affection is, is, is at the heart of it. It's how, as a Christian, you approach interpersonal relationships. If I say it that way, does that make sense? In other words, Philadelphia, it's phileo Aldafos in Greek, put it into one word, Philadelphia, is about how a Christian approaches interpersonal relationships with a caring, compassionate, gracious, merciful demeanor. And then brotherly affection leads to, and that's how you see it, affection with love and the word there for love is I think you all know most Christians know that Greek word is agape which is that self-sacrificing other centered love which is a supernatural love uh, and that's what as you I'm sure know that's what first Corinthians 13 is all about a, a quite magnificent chapter and that <clears throat> that final virtue in this list of seven, is the crowning one, the closing out one, because that's where you take, you, and this is so contrary to everything else, you take on the opposite. Um, and I'm in the first century, you know, in about AD 61, 62, when this epistle is written. You take, on, you take on a quality of life that is totally antithetical to everything you see. The Greco Roman world was a world of hubris. That's one of my favorite words don't you love that word <laughs> hubris mm-hmm. arrogant defiant pride and here into this culture characterized by hubris you have christians who are who are exhibiting something totally opposite i mean diametrically opposed because agape love is an other centered approach to life not selfish self-centered or self-indulgent, which is hubris, but an other-centered approach to life. And that is the ultimate of another quality that isn't listed here as a virtue, but of humility.
1: Jim, <clears throat> yeah, well, I'm suggesting that that part of the process right there... I
0: mean, it is. To get it
1: you know, is. It is. Exactly. You know, I don't know how anybody else feels here, but you know, just the closeness
0: and the bond that I think exists between all of us mm-hmm. demonstrates some progress in that area, you know, that we do care about others. And, and exactly. what's
1: good for them. You exactly. guys prayed for my brother, by the way. And uh, How did that go? Me, have overdone it a little bit. He
0: got out today. <laughs> do, you want, do you want me to pray that Lord slowing down a little bit? Is that what you want me to pray? Stop the healing process, Lord. <laughs>
1: you know, uh, we could just turn some of that towards helping him
0: stop smoking. Absolutely. It, 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 it yes, absolutely. Of and, yeah. No, that, aware of
1: players, yeah. aware of
0: thank you for that good report. That's really good, and I, we will pray that he stops smoking. Okay. It's for his health. I'll tell it, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so we're gonna
1: let about fourteen guys down.
0: <laughs> And just gently say to him, "It is God's will for your life. Do you stop smoking?" And that's what we're praying for, now, for health reasons, so, anyway. Um, I uh, kind of lost my uh, train of thought there with Woody's question, but uh, your comment. But the it closes out. It, that's what I want to say. It closes out this list of of uh, qualities or character traits of life that. <clears throat> really the practice of our position. And, and I know you know this, but let me just say it carefully here. This is not an exhaustive list. You follow me? No. Well, you can go to Ephesians, sorry, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and you see a list of nine. <laughs> you can go to, to Jesus in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 and you see eight. So it's, it, it, why Peter chooses these seven, I can't answer that question. He was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit that they would have had a particular, probably, it seems reasonable, a particular emphasis for these Christians who are being persecuted. And he's calling them to these qualities that relate more than likely to some very specific things going on. All right. Are there any final comments or questions about? We, we've taken almost two and a half weeks on this list of seven, but I think it's worthwhile. They are they're magnificent.
1: I think it says down in verse ten. He says, "If you practice these things, you
0: will never stumble." Mm-hmm. That's a, that's pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. We're getting there. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now look at the next two verses. Uh, Verses 8, well, actually, three verses. 8, what chapter 9. Are you on? That's, is that one, or one? Yeah, chapter 1. Okay. Of Second Peter, absolutely. Now, verse 8, n- just notice the language. I'm reading from the ESV here. I really like how they do this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, for if these qualities are yours, And are increasing. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, (laughs) what am I emphasizing? Sanctification. Sanctification. Mm -hmm. The process. The process. Mm -hmm. The process. The assumption of the Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, here is the process. These are increasing. It isn't an event, it's a process. Sanctification is a process. Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29 tell us the goal God has for the process. The Father wants us to become like his Son. That's the goal. And as I've said a couple, of Aristotle used to say, and I rarely quote Aristotle, but Aristotle used to say, you'll never hit the target. He's writing about ethics. You'll never hit the target if you don't know what the target is. Peter has just defined for us the characteristics of the target. (laughs) And who has that target for us? The Father does. He wants us, his children, to become like his son. I mean, I'm I'm putting it the way the New Testament puts it in a variety of ways. And every single one of us around this table, if you have a faith commitment to Jesus Christ, salvation, you are in this process. There's no one around this table that is not in this process. We're all in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And these seven quality traits are part of that target that the Father has for us. (coughs) Excuse me. Got it? I mean, it's like I want to give you a thought paper on this. Three pages, single-spaced, not double-spaced. I want to get as much as you can on the sheet of paper. Use a font of 12. No, I'm just kidding. So anyway, notice this. In our creasing, they keep you. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that, I mean, just think about that. He's stating something so critical to the sanctification process. If you do not understand what the Father's doing and you're not growing in this process, it hinders your effectiveness. Well, it's like, duh. I mean, it's like, well, of course it would. (laughs) Well, what what he's trying to do here is motivate us to be activists in pursuing this stuff. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, because God is at work within you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Philippians two twelve and thirteen, Peter say exactly the same thing. Be an activist in your pursuit of these virtues. I, I just I think verse eight and into verse nine just one of the most important little succinct summaries of this process that every one of us is involved in.
1: Uh, And and as we do that, Jim, uh, do you feel that we are going to be, I guess, encouraged by the Holy Spirit and supported by the Holy Spirit with this realization that this process is taking place within us as we do this? I mean, do you...
0: Yes, absolutely. We we need some we're, help
1: along the way as we're traveling this road too, don't
0: we? Yeah, not along the way. Every <laughs> single inch of every single foot of every single yard of every single in our in our journey in this path, we need the, the Holy Spirit's enabling grace. That's what the indwelling Spirit does, among many other things. That's right. Another, that's why another one of these lists um, in, in Galatians 5 is the fruit of the spirit. It's what the spirit produces in our life. Absolutely. I mean, I, you, I'm you. i sure you can easily understand this. If you're not sure, go ask my wife. It is not natural for me to love people. I mean, I don't like people. I, mean, I really don't. I don't like people. Get out of here. I mean, I just don't. I, I don't like people. I, you know, they're messy or just like me they're messy and they got all kind of baggage and and i'm being a little facetious not a little i'm being tremendously facetious but my um my mentor in pennsylvania before well it was actually after i was ordained said jim i want you to remember two things first of all jim it is not your business to change people that's god's business That was, when he told me that, I've never forgotten that. That was way, way, decades and decades and decades ago. And all my academic ministry, all my ministry in the churches and so on, that's really true. My job is not to change you guys. And I'm not going to take the burden on my shoulders of you not changing. That's God's business. My job is to faithfully teach the word of God so that he will use his word to change you. And if you don't want that, you know, that that's God has to deal with you in that. I can't coerce you into this, but I can faithfully lay it out. And the second thing he said to me, and this was humorous, but it's absolutely true. Jim, you will discover that ministry would be great if it were not for people. <laughs> but the ministry is people. That's the way it is, you know. You know, it's just, that's the way, it's people. And so, and I, that's when I say I hate people. I obviously am making a joke there. But, you know, my preference, if I really had my druthers, what I would do is lock myself up in a, you know, an ivory tower somewhere and just study all the time. Mm-hmm. But that, God has made it so clear, that is not what he wants me to do with my life. And I'm I'll please understand the spirit in which I'm saying that. What, what Peter is, is saying here is what God has done is he's created the target of sanctification. Be an activist in this because you see it is increasing. And if you don't see it this way, it'll keep you from being effective. Or, you know, you, you don't want that to be ineffective and unfruitful. And he's just laying it out. It's like every aspect of life, you have a choice. As I said, this is the salvation gift, the grace of God. I've done it everything, all you gotta do is pick it up. If you choose not to pick it up, none of its benefits will ever be appropriated to your life. Okay, you pick up the gift. You start, you're you, you are justified, you're declared righteous. Now the Lord is saying to you, I have the target for you. I want to transform you into the image of my son. You ready? Uh, I'll get back to you on that Lord. let me think about it for seven years. I'm being again silly but God is saying no, I want you to be an active participant in this. I want you to want what I want to do and so every single day you choose you know you say Lord I can handle this day I'll see you I'll see you tomorrow morning this day I've got covered. And that might end up being about the worst day you've lived in 44 months again. So it's just, he's laying it out. Then he says, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities, what qualities? The seven we just covered is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. So who is he describing in verse 9? The person who doesn't want the sanctifying grace of God. The person who does not want these virtues to be developed. The person who's stagnant. The person who does not desire to grow. The person who has one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of darkness and seems to be happy with that, which is almost impossible. And Peter says, he uses the metaphor, they're so nearsighted. What does that mean? Just think of an ophthalmologist. When an ophthalmologist says you're nearsighted, what does that mean? You can't see that you can't see the big picture. You're so focused on yourself. You're so focused on the narrow things here, you can't see the big picture. You can't see what God really wants to do with your life. You can't see the incredible opportunities that are out there because you're now a child of God. You're in his family. You're so nearsighted and 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 self-centered and you just you forget everything that God's done for you. And you even start to forget that here's who you are. Now start acting like that. You know, you 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 forget that you've been cleansed from your former sin. You forget that you've been changed. Now start living that way. <clears throat> When I was in Pennsylvania, there was a guy that I, I knew, and he was just a really interesting guy. And I, I, I can't know if I can remember the number, but he, I, he said, "You know, I have been saved." and I think his number was something like 73 times. It's a guy verse nine. He's, I, there were a lot of things in that man's life, but he's forgetting something he doesn 't understand the difference between justification and sanctification because what would happen is he'd he'd say he you know when I was growing up in the 1950s it was walk the sawdust trail i don 't know if that even means anything to any of you but it was the old the old old you know, tent meetings and things like that where you you would lay down sawdust and salt chips and erect a tent and have a visiting evangelist come in and do revival meetings and just constantly people are walking the sawdust trail up to the, up to the altar. That's what it meant. So it, and, and what happened, I know exactly what happened to that guy. He, he'd, come to, he'd, he'd come to faith, he'd ask the Lord to forgive him, he'd say, I believe that you died for me, and so on. And go two weeks, and he'd, do, he'd go back into his old life, and his old habits, and old patterns of sin. <gasps> I wasn't really saved in the first place. So i got to start over again. And that's just, that's horrible. That's horrible, because sanctification... It's the process of getting rid of the old habits and old patterns and replacing them with the new habits and new patterns centered in Christ. Ephesians 4, 22, 23, 24, and 25. That's it. And so you don't go back and start over. Wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, you fall, you stumble, good. Pick yourself up and get going. And my favorite passage on this is Philippians 3, I think it's 13 and 14. What does Paul say? I don't look back. I think it's Philippians three. I think it's verse thirteen and fourteen. I don't look back, but I press on to the high calling, of the prize which is centered in Christ Jesus, my Lord. You and I are not looking backward, because it backwards where all the junk is. We are. We are. We are. We are on a new path. We're justified. We've been declared righteous. Now we're in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, and that takes the rest of our lives. I mean, I came to the Lord in 1972, and I had a lot of habits and patterns that I had to get rid of. That took me a long time. It wasn't a matter of days. It was a matter of years. To get those old habits and old patterns of sin. That's sanctification. But Peter is saying, don't be nearsighted, you know, I mean, you you don't see, all you do is see the immediate, and you're so focused on yourself, and you're stumbling and falling, and I, I failed the Lord again, and He no longer hears my prayers, etc. That's not that's not right. And so it's just it's picking yourself up and get, get okay, get going, and you don't look back. Christians go into the future often with their break, foot on the brake and their eyes in the rearview mirror. That's how they go into the future. And Paul says, I press on. I don't look back. Jesus is taking care of the stuff in your back. It's over. Now live like it. Go forward. And he says, therefore, brother, I love this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. That's a great way to translate that. To make your calling and election sure. If you practice these things, you'll never fall, you'll never stumble. In other words, without getting into you know, the debate that always goes on when you bring up the word election, but call it, what, all he's saying, your election, your election, is, it's, it's secure, this is who you are. Live like that. Here's who you are. However you're gonna understand calling an election, this is who you are. Now start living like that. As he says, be more diligent to make it sure. Practice these qualities. And you'll start to get victory over the old habits and old patterns. It's a magnificent summary of the strategy for holiness every single one of us should have. First part of the strategy. Strategic initiative number one, I don't look back. Jesus has taken care of all that. That's what the cross is all about in my life. All that junk's gone. Strategic initiative number two, I'm beginning to develop the habits and patterns that cultivate who I am. Corollary to strategic initiative number two, in parenthesis, with 17 exclamation points, it's going to take some time for this to occur. Strategic initiative number three, when I fall, stumble, stumble, when I make mistakes, when I go back to the old habits, pick myself up, talk to the Lord about it, and move on. Don't look back.
1: And the, and the devil is going to constantly be accusing us mm-hmm. of not doing that, but falling behind, and he'll want us to focus on mm-hmm. the, the past, which we don't live in exactly. anymore, and we can reject that because it's covered by the blood of Christ. And, exactly.
0: And we're looking forward to yep. moving exactly. ahead. Exactly. Luther used to Luther used to talk and write about this very thing. He would be attacked by Satan, reminding him of his past thing. And there, I, it may be apocryphal; it may be true. But there's one instance when he was at at the, the Wartburg, he threw his inkwell at the devil. <laughs> I mean, he was, so, he was so frustrated with these tempting thoughts and this constant, he just got so, he just threw his inkwell at the devil, which I don't know what that meant. It bounced off the wall, I guess. But, I mean, just because Satan was attacking him at that level. Because he was so alone at that time, literally alone. And was, But anyway, that is, and that's one of his most effective tools. And uh, if, uh, this, again, uh, way long ago when, uh, after 1972 the guy who really helped me he used to say to me and I, I really think this is absolutely central if you've talked to the Lord about a sin you've fallen and stumbled and you take you confess it to the Lord agree with the Lord about it and after you do that you still feel guilt that guilt's not from the Lord that guilt's from Satan you've been cleansed, you're done it's, it's over, from God's perspective it's no longer an issue so if, you're feeling, if you've dealt with it and you're feeling guilt, that's not from the Lord. And you just reject that. I mean, this, this is something, it's hard because often we wallow in this. And you know, just the way we often are, we, we are so performance-based and, so, and we fall and, and you, you start to think, well, the Lord doesn't care for me anymore. Look what I just did. Look, you know this. You've got to always remember it. There's nothing you can do that's going to cause God to love you more or love you less than he does right now his love is absolutely consistent. And that you, your performance doesn't doesn't affect how much he loves you <laughs> or lack of performance however you want to put it. Peter Peter is just laying out profoundly important truths about our life. And we got to keep remembering these truths. Because sometimes, maybe you aren't like this, some days I don't feel real good. I don't feel motivated. I don't particularly want to do much. And you just, then you start, I'm exaggerating a bit, you start wallowing in things. And If you let your life be that day after day after day after day, you get into a self-defeated, I don't know, what else the way to say it without sounding unkind, feeling sorry for yourself, and I'm the only person in the whole universe that's struggling with this? That's not true. (laughs) And And then Peter closes out this wonderful section. For in this way, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does he mean by verse 11? Pardon me? I still didn't hear you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I, it's like, what I just described, your position and your practice, this is the path. This is the way. This is how you're supposed to live. Until Jesus comes back. Because he's promised you what? An eternal kingdom. He's promised you that. He's richly provided this for you. It's a promise. This is the path, and what he's another way of saying it is Peter has just described how we should look at the path, our position, which leads to a practice, which has this goal toward it, uh, this goal for it, and this is the path. This is the way. And it's, it's, he's not talking about meriting it or earning it. He's describing the path. This is what it looks like. And it's like, you know, if I were writing this, which you're thankful I didn't, I, at the end of that, I say, so, so let's get going. Or so let's keep going. Because that's really what he's saying. This is the path. Is it hard? Yeah. Because you're sinners, struggling. Luther used to say, and you know, I'm, Quoting Luther a lot, because in you know, a Reformation celebration in one sense is still going on, but it started last year. And so I read a lot of reread a lot of stuff about Luther, but he used a Latin phrase, but it translated, we're just, but yet we're sinners. That's what Luther used to say. We're justified. We're righteous. We're holy, but yet we're sinners. Mm-hmm. That's the yes. difference between justification and sanctification. No. And we've got to keep those things separate. Peter is doing that here. Here's who you are. Here's the practice of who you are. And the practice of who you are is getting rid of all the junk and habits and patterns of sin and replacing it with these verses. And that's a process. It is a process. But the goal, the goal is glorification. The goal is the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that motivates us. That should motivate us to keep going. It really should.
1: So, <clears throat> but I'd be correct in reading into this verse. Uh, a lot of we talked about it will be abundantly supplied to you the things that like for, Fred referenced earlier the power of the Holy Spirit to work mm-hmm. in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the encouragement we get from Christian mm-hmm. friends. The teaching we get from our churches i mean all of those things that are resources that help us mm-hmm.
0: along the way walk,
1: walk
0: this path. Mm-hmm. the lord has given us another aspect is magnificent grace the lord has given us the resources to to uh, pull this off to his glory absolutely yeah Yep, <laughs> you, you got so it. So alone up there, yeah, right? yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why uh, one of you, maybe it was Woody who said that earlier, that's why just gathering with men that are serious about the Lord, as you, you all do every Wednesday here, that's, just, that's, that's an encouragement time. You're hearing the Word of God, you're, but you're with other guys, and it's just an encouragement time. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why church is so important. I anything particularly magical about the building but it's the people there mm-hmm. and it, it's all that occurs in those dynamics our, the mission statement of my church is we seek, seek to see Jesus transform lives through God's word through prayer through loving relationships and those three things we really focus on those three things and that really 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 bears the fruit you want to see God is transforming people and so Peter has just given us a it is really, it's. I know it's hard. Some of these words and terms and phrases are are a little hard. But when you start to unpack them, you say, oh, it isn't really that hard. So that's kind of, you know, you kind of can remember the three Ps, position, practice, path. That just summarizes what he's saying. What's our, what's our position? It's very secure. Um, it's very stable. It won't change. I've declared righteous. This is who I am. My new identity, I'm in Christ. 242 times in the New Testament. Now I'm in the practice of being conformed into the image of Christ. I'm practicing my position, but I'm on the path to eternal life, mm-hmm. the glory, the kingdom of the glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and all of those. And though, so that end is a, is a motivator to keep going too. All right, boy, this would be a great time for an assignment, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Any other questions before we introduce oh goodness I so off a quarter of good passage. It is.
1: It's, passage. it's
0: a rich, rich passage, it really is. But I just if you just every now and then just look at verse eight again, it you know, it, it characterizes again who you're these qualities are yours and are increasing. They're yours and increasing. That's sanctification. You're just you're seeing growth in these areas, increasing. That's that's our goal, increasing. Now, verse twelve, another uh, long section that will be on this probably for about four weeks, but uh, he he continues this this whole matter of our growth, and he talks. I called it in your outline there the requirements for growth. And he talks about a whole variety of things, including, and we get to verse 20, uh, uh, 21 uh, and so on, is, is quite important, uh, as you'll see in a minute. I want to connect that with Second Timothy 3.16 in about four weeks when we get there. <laughs> That's a joke. Nobody laughed. Verse 12 <clears throat> Uh, what I think this will be true in all your translations. let me introduce this and we'll just have to quit because of time. What's the first word of verse 12? therefore, therefore. and so you know that means Paul is now going to draw some conclusions based, I'm sorry I said Paul, I meant Peter is going to draw now some conclusions of what he just taught us. therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. when you come to this class, is to remind you... I'm not equivocating myself with Peter. I'm just saying that a good preacher, a good teacher, is always doing this. Reminding you of the difference between justification, sanctification, glorification. Reminding you of the characteristics and qualities that should be a part of your life. It's the target. I didn't put it there. God put it there. But notice... So these qualities are referring to what we just studied... Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Do you see that? Two key f- phrases. Though you know them, what does that mean? I taught them to you, you know them, but I'm going to keep reviewing them. That's
1: very really
0: important. Exactly. The most effective teaching tool is review. Review, 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 review. That's the most effective teaching tool. And Peter says, I'm going to keep doing it, even though you know it. And even though you're establishing the truth, I'm still going to keep reviewing it. It's a great way to end the class. Because I'm going to keep reviewing some of this stuff. I'm just kidding, I may not. But it's just, that's a good teacher Always reviews, and reviews, and reviews, and reviews, and reviews. And reviews. Yes, right, way in the back. Why are you sitting over there? Oh, okay, because I didn't even remember seeing you come in. Actually, <laughs> <No. laughs> so, so, I found out that No. So, Peter's recognizing that individuals are at individual
1: places. Along yes, path of, yes. So, sort of the sanctification. Exactly. And so he says, you know, this is what you have. Yeah.
0: I want you to keep increasing, going back to verse 8. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, <laughs> uh, I, we seriously, I think we better quit here because of time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. All right. You bet. Absolutely. We will, we will remember that. And we'll pray for Woody's uh, brother, Pete, right? Yes. Okay. Lord, thank you for our time this afternoon uh, around the word of God. Thank you for um, what I think is a very powerful and succinct summary of the truth of genuine biblical Christianity. The position of who we are in Christ, verses 3 and 4. This is our position. This is who we are. And then the challenge to practice who we are, the sanctification, that is that process that you put us all in when we put our faith in Christ. And we're all in process. We're all increasing. I use that word that Peter uses. None of us have made it. None of us are there. But we're together just encouraging and edifying and stimulating one another to love and good deeds, as the author of Hebrews puts it. And so we're thankful for that. Thank you for each man here. We certainly pray for them. Pray that the word of God will continue to pierce their heart, penetrate their soul, and that you will uh, just continue your work of conforming us to the image of your son, the Lord Jesus. That's our goal. That's your goal. We want those to be the same. And I pray, too, for two of these requests. I think of Fred. He, I think he said next week at this time he will be in surgery. I, I don't know all the details, but that's not that important. We just pray for our brother. I pray for the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and all the other people that will be ministering to him medically. We pray that uh, it will achieve its goals. and We pray that you'll give him a calmness, a spirit of dependence and faith and trust in you. And we're going to believe and trust you for a good result for this surgery. And we remember Woody's brother too, Pete. And Thank you that... From the little summary he gave us, he's apparently doing very well, recovering well. But I think he said also he's continuing to smoke. And I just uh, would pray, Lord, that you give him that enablement and that strength and that desire and the courage to put that behind him. Not because it's in itself necessarily evil. It's just not wise. That's not a good thing for someone to do. It, It destroys life. It destroys cells. And that's not a good, healthy thing to do. So for that reason, Lord, we'd ask you to help him break that habit, and we would commit that to you as well. So, Lord, we go our separate ways now. We lift all these uh, prayer needs to you and things that I'm not aware of that were not spoken. We trust them all to you and ask ask you to help us to represent you well in what we say and do in Christ's name. See you next week.